Hey, daters. Are you sick of small talk and no date being planned? Well, I'm excited to introduce you to First Rounds on Me, a revolutionary dating app designed for modern singles who are fed up with the frustrations of today's dating scene. The app is all about actually helping you plan dates and build genuine connections. How so? Well, the only way you match with someone is by planning a date. Send a date, a time, and a location, and then the rest is up to you. Ready to go on real dates? You can get one free month of their premium subscription with code DOCTOR, D-O-C-T-O-R. Download First Rounds on Me using the link in the show notes and start building meaningful connections offline. Hello and welcome to Reimagining Love. I'm Dr. Alexandra Solomon. Relationships have the power to wound us and the power to heal us. As a clinical psychologist, author, and professor at Northwestern University, I've devoted my life to studying intimate partnerships and family dynamics. On Reimagining Love, I'm here to translate complex clinical topics into tools and takeaways that you can use in your relationships today. If you're ready to develop relational self-awareness and create vibrant and loving relationships with the people who matter most to you, you've come to the right place. I'm so glad that you're here. How often do you take time to intentionally reflect on your relationships? You know, most of us could be a bit more habitual about this, and that is why I'm so thrilled to announce that my newest book, Love Every Day, is out in the world at last. It is packed with 365 reflections that will help you build this rewarding daily habit and cultivate relational self-awareness for healing and growth all year long. The readings will guide you to more deeply understand the impact of your past and your partner's past on your relationship. You'll also explore how to get your needs met, enhance communication, improve intimacy, and address relationship problems. So whether you're single, in a relationship, or between relationships, Love Every Day is really going to resonate with you. It's a beautiful guide that is perfect for your own nightstand and as a gift for someone special. There's even a fancy little ribbon for marking your place. Love Every Day invites you to develop awareness, curiosity, and empowerment so you can be seen and loved as your most authentic self and heal from times when you weren't. With this daily practice, you and your relationships will flourish throughout the year. You will find Love Every Day wherever you get your books, or you can find the link in the show notes to order it from loveeverydaybook.com. Happy reading. Welcome to a solo episode devoted to resentment in intimate relationships. I want us in this episode to develop a deeper understanding of what exactly resentment is and how to identify when we're experiencing it. And then most importantly, I'm going to share my nine favorite strategies for transforming resentment, not shutting it down, not ignoring it, not invalidating our way out of it, but really, truly transforming it. Okay, so what is resentment? Psychologists tend to think about resentment as a complex emotion meaning that it's a blend of a few different emotions, namely disappointment plus anger plus some amount of disgust. And the word resentment comes from the old French raisonter, which means the re-experiencing of a strong emotion. And resentment has that quality of rumination, doesn't it? sort of that playing incidents over and over again inside our minds and kind of collecting a set of data points that kind of prove, you know, that we ought to be feeling disappointment and anger and judgment of our partner. Nelson Mandela is quoted as having said, resentment is like drinking poison and then hoping it will kill your enemies. And in that, what Mandela is pointing us towards is the way in which resentment keeps us stuck 
it is something that we may feel about somebody else, but it's doing harm to ourselves, which is why I'm so glad that we're spending time on this topic today. Resentment is sometimes referred to as the emotion of justice because it develops in the face of something that we are perceiving or experiencing as unfair. So it is a protest emotion. It's saying this is not okay as it is. Carrie Howells, who is an educator who has spent decades studying gratitude, argues that resentment is actually the conceptual opposite of gratitude. And she argues that just like we cannot expect to be grateful 100% of the time, we're all prone to slipping into the experience of resentment at times. In an article by Antonietta Contreras, resentment is described as the downstream effect of more primary emotional experiences like, quote, neglect, disappointment, envy, disgust, exasperation, and irritation. So it's kind of like where we end up when some mix of those emotions come together in protest over what we're experiencing. So let's talk about how to identify resentment. Take a moment and see if you can get in touch with how resentment tends to feel inside of your body. To me, when I call up a time when I've experienced resentment, it feels like a tightness in my chest and sort of a flush like inside of my cheeks and my head. And it feels kind of like a warm emotion, like a warm and bitter emotion for sure. When I was doing research for this episode, I did something that I do quite often is I posted a sticker on Instagram and I asked this question. I asked two questions. My first question was, what does resentment feel like in your body? Here's a sample of the responses that I receive back from people. And as I read through these, just kind of take them in and see which ones kind of line up with or perhaps give language to the experience of resentment inside of your body. The top word that people used in their responses when they were capturing the feeling of resentment, the number one word that I saw over and over again in these responses was tightness, that feeling of tightness. People described it as tightness in my chest or tightness in my throat or more generally tightness in my body. It was described as consuming, as stiffness, avoiding eye contact or physical contact, brisk everything, knots in my stomach, white noise in my head, suppressed rage, mental knots, urgency, and that feeling of do something, a piece of crumpled paper lodged in my chest, anger, my throat feels blocked, it's physically hard to swallow and breathe, chaos, a nagging ache, stiffness crossed body, hot feeling in the face, jaw clenched, a storm that can't come out, then complete shutdown. And finally, a burning feeling in the lining of my stomach and also hard to find the reset button. Such evocative descriptions. I want to validate that it tends to be the case that resentment builds over time. And it might be hard for you to notice at first. And that might be especially true if you're early-ish in your journey of more deeply understanding yourself, more deeply understanding relationship experiences, more if, if it's a bit newer for you to be putting words to your experiences. So resentment may be sort of building outside of your awareness. And it may be that like checking in with your body is one of the ways that you might start to identify that you're holding on to some resentment. Okay, how about the thoughts that reflect and likely amplify the feeling of resentment? Those thoughts can sound like, my partner doesn't understand how much I dot, dot, dot. My partner doesn't notice that I, my partner doesn't appreciate me. I do so much. I'm trying so hard. Why won't my partner? My partner should or my partner shouldn't. How many times do I have to ask my partner to dot, dot, dot? Those are some of the thoughts that kind of capture and then amplify and kind of feed and fuel that cycle. Okay, how about behavior? What are some behaviors that indicate 
resentment or some behaviors that you may notice inside of yourself that would highlight for you that you may be in fact experiencing resentment. I think to me, the top behavior that highlights or reveals resentment is scorekeeping. For example, I'm loading the dishwasher for the fifth time in a row. Or I've asked my partner five questions and they've only asked me two questions. Or I've initiated sex the last bunch of times and my partner hasn't. So that kind of keeping track, keeping score, comparing what you're doing versus comparing what they're doing. Resentment, I think, can also show up behaviorally as sarcasm or clipped answers to questions and then a feeling of disengagement. So it may not be outright conflict, but it may be a feeling of tension and a lack of ease. Okay, the other question that I asked on Instagram is this one. I asked people to complete this sentence. I'm struggling to let go of resentment about dot, dot, dot. And I asked people to fill in the blank. I'm going to read you a sample of the responses that I received, and you'll hear that they're a blend of resentments about relationships that are ongoing, as well as relationships that have ended. They also represent a blend of examples from romantic relationships, as well as from all kinds of relationships like friendships and family relationships. Okay, here's the list. Being unfriended by someone I thought was a close friend over a guy. I'm struggling to let go of resentment about not being able to move back to my home country about someone not being willing to see my side of a conflict, not willing to at least see what I see. I'm struggling to let go of resentment about my sister not thanking me for helping so much at her wedding. My ex's lies, he had a long affair and lied to everyone during our divorce. I'm struggling to let go of resentment about inequity of the mental load and the domestic workload. Side note, that was a theme that appeared a few times about people struggling to let go of resentment about inequities at home and domestic work. I'm struggling to let go of resentment about somebody's inability to love me back and want me the way that I love them. A boyfriend who won't commit. Having been fat shamed by my ex targeting my deepest insecurities. That one's even hard to read out loud. The time that failed relationships took from my life. My mother for not providing the emotional attunement I needed as a child. My ex ended our marriage and somehow ended up with more money than I will ever have again. And then being ignored when I speak calmly and only giving attention when I'm fuming and furious. This broad list reminds us that resentment arises in many different contexts and for many different reasons. Our focus today is going to be on tools for transforming resentment when you want to stay in the relationship. So resentment about an ongoing struggle in an ongoing relationship. So all of our emotions are data. Emotions point us toward something, something that warrants our attention, something that warrants conversation with our partner. And that is surely the case with resentment. Resentment lets you know something needs to change with your perspective and or with your relationship dynamic. Resentment likely is not going to resolve on its own. Resentment is a symptom of a larger problem in the relationship. Remember, it's the emotion of justice. Resentment is something that arises inside of you. It lives in you as a tightness in your chest, but it muddies the space between the two of you. It shifts the dynamic between the two of you. And that's why we're going to need our tools of relational self-awareness to address the feeling of resentment so that you can take responsibility for your experience and approach any changes that might shift the relationship dynamic as a team. Resentment that is left unaddressed is going to breed more resentment. Here's the sequence. You are feeling negatively about your partner and you put negativity out there with your partner. Your partner is going to meet and match your negativity with negativity of their own. And their negativity towards you is going to feel to you like confirmation that your grievances are quote unquote justified. And by the way, Whether or not your grievances are justified is really actually beside the point. I love it when my dear friend Terry Real reminds us that arguing about objective reality is a road to nowhere. So we're not talking about whether your grievances are justified or not justified. We're talking about what you do with your grievances and how putting negativity out there gets you negativity back and ends up feeling like confirmation. You want something that you are not getting, and something needs to change to help you get relief. 
that something that needs to change, of course, might be the other person's behavior. But as we're going to explore today, that something that needs to shift might also be your perspective. It might also be your approach. It might also be your responses to your partner. So I'm going to over and over again in this episode, ever so gently, but somewhat firmly, invite and challenge you to keep yourself in the mix. This is not easy at all. And that's because when you're experiencing resentment, it really does feel so convincing that if your partner would just behave differently, you would feel better. But this chain of thought has an air of entitlement to it. Like you know with certainty what is necessary and what is best. It's going to be more effective for you to begin with curiosity and compassion for why you are feeling so badly and then move toward talking to your partner about what would feel good, what would feel supportive, what would feel nurturing to you. Okay, it's time for our nine resentment busting strategies. So I'm going to talk you through these strategies that you can use in some combination. You can try one, you can try more than one, just sort of trial and error, see what's helpful to you. You can use these tools to transform resentment in your relationship. And some of these strategies are asking you to look at something inside of yourself and you might notice that you have some resistance to that idea. Because again, our default setting tends to be that we would feel less resentful if our partner would just do something different. And that actually may very well be the case. However, number one, you cannot change another person. Number two, sometimes the reaction that you're having to your partner's behavior is as problematic and troublesome as the thing your partner is doing. And number three, Sometimes the reaction you are having is part of what keeps your partner stuck doing what they're doing. I am not saying that you are responsible for your partner's behavior, but I am saying that you are awfully powerful. What you do shapes what they do. So I'm going to challenge you to remember that if you do something different, it's very likely that they will do something different. So our nine strategies, I'm going to just name them up top and then, you know, give you some more information about each of them. Here they are. Number one, identify your resentment valence. Number two, take a holistic view of the relationship. Number three, identify your partner's patterns of accommodation. Number four, name the feeling behind the feeling. Number five, revise your relationship agreements. Number six, consider doing less. Number seven, Celebrate approximations. Number eight, practice forgiveness. Number nine, boost gratitude. Okay, so as I talk through these nine, just notice your reactions, what happens inside of your body as I offer them. If and when you notice the rise of resistance and defensiveness to my suggestion, pause and get curious. Your resistance has something to show you. What might you be afraid of feeling? If you acknowledge that your perspective is part of the problem, do you worry then about slipping into shame or do you worry then that your partner's going to use that against you? Remember that looking at relationship problems as dynamics helps us feel better able to move out of blame and shame and into something more curious and collaborative. Your defensiveness or resistance to the ideas I'm presenting here might also reflect that you are dealing with a significant and persistent imbalance in your relationship. If your partner blames you for all of the problems in your relationship, if your partner refuses to lift a finger around the house, if your partner behaves in ways that are disrespectful and unkind, your resentment is in fact a blinking and self-protective indicator light that the status quo in your relationship is not tenable. It is a warning sign inside of you that this is not tenable. So you might need professional help from a therapist and or a couples therapist. You might need to consider whether this relationship is viable. So this content should not ever be used to make you feel okay about a situation that is deeply unfair and that erodes your sense of self-worth. And as is always, always the case around here on Reimagining Love, 
I want you to feel a ton of permission to take what feels helpful and leave the rest. So some amount of resistance or defensiveness might be a reflection that I'm challenging your way of seeing things. I'm asking you to take a bit more responsibility and accountability, and that's uncomfortable. But it may also be that this content does not apply to your situation because there are actually pretty gross injustices that are happening in your relationship. So I want to just make space for that and name that. Do you feel like you're at a crossroads in your love life? Maybe you are sick of modern dating or wondering if the person that you're with is your person. Whatever your situation, I have the perfect podcast for you, Dateable. Dateable is your insider's look into modern dating, hosted by Julie Kraftchik and UA Shu. Julie and UA bring a sense of humor to their insightful explorations of all things dating, turning matches into actual dates, the psychology of relationships, red flags, attachment styles, and so much more. I am proud to have been a guest on their podcast three times. So if you're looking for a great starting point, check out my latest episode with them when you're ready and they're not. I'll put a link at the bottom of the show notes. Wherever you start, this podcast is going to help you feel inspired to date differently and create a love life that works for you. Subscribe to Dateable wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, strategy number one, identify your resentment valence. When I use valence, it's like, I think it's a term from chemistry or physics about electrons or some such thing, but it's like your tendency, like what you kind of suck towards you, what you are sensitive to, what you boost and amplify. So your resentment valence is this idea that based on your experiences in your past, especially in your family of origin, you come into your romantic relationship with a particular set of sensitivities. You are primed to notice particular types or textures or tones of imbalances in your dynamic. It's not about objective capital T truth necessarily. It's about how you are primed. When we're talking about patterns that come with us from our past, you know that I find it helpful to talk about the role that you played in your family of origin. As Dr. Gabor Mate says, When we're little, we are at risk of trading authenticity for belonging. We are at risk of becoming who our families need us to be. And that's because belonging and feeling connected to our family is actually a matter of life and death. It's actually a matter of survival. So we take on roles. And the more a family system struggles with dysfunction and unhealthy patterns, the more rigidly and narrowly that family system will cast young people into roles. So kids take on roles and families of origin in order to help that family find some approximation of stability and quote-unquote normalcy. In episode 50 of Reimagining Love, back in the day, episode number 50, I did an episode called Tending to Little You and Exploring Your Family of Origin. And in that episode, I introduced you to six different roles that we tend, that kids tend, that young people in a family system tend to take on in families of origin. And those six roles are the perfect one, the easy one, the struggling one, the peacemaker, the parentified child, and the rebel. So if you don't already know your family of origin role, head to dralexandrasolomon.com slash roles quiz, R-O-L-E-S-Q-U-I-Z. Take our quiz and find out and uh, listen to that episode for more information on each of those roles. We've shared all of those links in the show notes. So I'm going to name all six of those roles. I'm going to describe the role briefly, and then I'm going to name what your resentment valence might be if that's the role that you played in your family of origin. In other words, if you were this role, you might be particularly sensitive to imbalances in this particular area because you carry with you into your adult intimate relationship tendencies and patterns and sensitivities from the family that you grew up in. In other words, you might be primed to feel especially sensitive to one type of imbalance based on the role you played when you were growing up. Okay, so first, the perfect one. 
you were a perfect one in your family of origin if you felt like the grown-ups relied on your grades or your athletic accomplishments to feel good about themselves. That was the role that you played to help them feel good about themselves and, and what they were up to. If that's the case for you, your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that I'm punished for my competence. I can carry more, so I end up carrying more. Other people are graded on a curve, but not me. Okay, number two, the easy one. You were an easy one in your family of origin if you felt like you needed to keep quiet about your wants, needs, and struggles in order to keep the peace and to not overburden people. You became easy as a way of not rocking the boat. So then your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that the things I do go unnoticed. People don't ask, they just assume that I can and I will. Number three, the struggling one. You were a struggling one if you tended to act up or take up a lot of space in order to keep the big people from fighting with each other or having problems with each other. You kind of took the heat in the family system. So your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that things tend to be harder for me and that people don't take that into account. People expect me to be able to handle more than I can actually handle. Number four, the peacemaker. You are the peacemaker in your family of origin if the big people in your family relied on you to broker peace or to calm things down. Your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that people expect me to initiate repair and they rely on me to clean up their messes. Okay, five, the parentified child. You were a parentified child if you felt like you needed to provide comfort, affirmation, and validation to the big people in your family, often to your own detriment. So your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that people don't notice my struggle. I resent that I'm expected to provide comfort, but I rarely receive it. And then the rebel, number six. You were the rebel in your family system, if you felt like you had to consistently and repeatedly point out problems in your family because nobody else would speak up. So then your resentment valence might sound like this. I resent that I'm the one who has to point out the problems and call out what's really happening. I resent that people act like things are okay when they clearly aren't. Okay, so if you have now identified your resentment valence, you know that you are primed to feel activated around one type of inequality in your relationship versus another. And knowing this can help you separate the past from the present a little bit. Yes, there may very well be an imbalance, but it might not be as severe or as extreme as it feels inside of you because Little you is screaming, here we go again. So knowing your resentment valence gives you the chance to tend to little you, to assure little you that you are not going to get lost or overlooked or overburdened or overwhelmed today like you did back then, that you can, in fact, stand up for yourself advocate for yourself, that you have resources and tools now that you didn't have then. And by taking responsibility for your tendency to react strongly in this particular area, you can move yourself towards a reaction that fits the situation and that helps you advocate for yourself while also advocating for the relationship. Number two, take a holistic view of the relationship. So can you accept that you, like all of us, are more likely to notice the domains of the relationship in which you are over-functioning or giving more than your partner, and that you are less likely to notice the domains of the relationship in which you are under-functioning or doing less than your partner? (laughs) Can you humble yourself to know that? that you, like all of us, are at risk of not having, you know, quite an objective perspective here. And by the way, for more on disrupting the over-functioning, under-functioning dynamic, check out episode number 33 of Reimagining Love linked in the show notes. I love that we're almost 100 episodes in. So when I'm creating new episodes for you, I get to remind you about other ones that can kind of fill in or round out whatever I'm presenting today. So in other words, Yes, you definitely might initiate repair 
far more often than your partner does because that is a strength of yours. But your partner may initiate plans with friends and family far more often than you do because that is a strength of theirs. Relationships have inherent divisions of labor, and that actually is a really, really good thing. Having different zones of genius strengthens you as a couple. And I think this is a place where love languages can be very, very helpful. So love languages, as I'm sure you know, were introduced by Dr. Gary Chapman back, I don't know, in the 90s. And the love languages book has sold maybe 80 gazillion copies. I don't know. I've lost track. So Dr. Gary Chapman argues there are five love languages, words of affirmation, acts of service, gifts, quality time, and touch. So you are likely over-functioning in your relationship in your preferred love language. If your primary love language is acts of service, you probably take excellent care of your partner when they're sick. And you might feel resentful that they don't take very good care of you when you are sick. Okay, but now take a moment and think about your partner's love language. And let's say their love language is quality time. They're probably making sure that the two of you go on a date each week or that you check out a new exhibit at a local art museum where that might not even blip on your radar. So be careful not to make a hierarchy about better and worse ways of contributing to the relationship. Instead, just notice that you're contributing in different ways. When you look only at your domain, you get skewed. So noticing and coding is a powerful way to neutralize and transform resentment. So ask yourself the following questions. Number one, what is my partner doing for me that I am perhaps missing because it is in a domain that I'm not attending to? Number two, what keeps me from noticing and coding these actions as helpful to our overall relationship? Number three, what might I worry that I will lose if I start to count their contributions more? Number four, in order to shift the overall dynamic in our relationship, how might I challenge myself to perhaps express a bit more love in my partner's love language? So taking a holistic view of the relationship is a way of widening your lens and ensuring that you're taking into account all of what your partner does. There's a ton of humility and respect in reminding yourself that you are at risk of having a skew in your perspective because we are all at risk of having a skew in our perspective. And what matters is not the presence of the skew, but what you do about it. And widening that lens is a powerful tool for transforming resentment. Number three, identify your partner's patterns of accommodation. Okay, so the heart of a healthy, intimate relationship is interdependence, two people becoming a we. That's not dependence, that's not codependence, that's interdependence. And there are things that you do to accommodate your partner, for sure, for sure. And your resentment might be caused by your sharp awareness that you are doing things to accommodate your partner. And your accommodation of them creates feelings inside of you fear of losing yourself, fear that this means you are weak or needy, etc. And all of that focus on how you are accommodating them might lead you to miss the ways that they are accommodating you. So learning to notice your partner's pattern of accommodation can help you transform feelings of resentment. So ask yourself the following questions. What are the ways in which I might not be particularly easy to get along with, at least some of the time. What does my partner tend to look the other way on? That one's really important and that one's tricky. It can be hard to notice the absence of something. But what are things that you might do that are annoying or irritating or difficult or burdensome that your partner doesn't call you out on, that your partner just moves with? And if and as you can identify these, can you feel appreciation for their accommodation rather than shame that you need to be accommodated? Especially if you were an easy one growing up, the idea that someone has to work themselves around you might feel foreign and it might feel uncomfortable. 
See if you can challenge yourself to just tolerate this a little bit more. You get to take up space. You get to require effort. You get to ask for the things that feel good to you. You can supercharge this third strategy by saying it out loud to your partner. You can notice and express appreciation for what your partner does to make up for your imperfections, for your growing edges, for your perfectly imperfect humanness. Acknowledgement goes a long way towards building safety and closeness. Number four, name the feeling behind the feeling. This is like, Couples therapy 101 here. In couples therapy, we talk about hard disclosures versus soft disclosures. Hard disclosures are expressions of anger, contempt, frustration, and of course, resentment. For example, you never ask me about my day. You are totally focused on yourself. When we do a hard disclosure, which, you know, hard disclosures reflect frustration, they reflect urgency, they reflect pain. So it's not about whether or not the feeling is legit, it's about the how. So when we do a hard disclosure, when we express it in this way, your partner is going to become defensive or they're going to shut down. They're going to complain about how you're difficult or they're going to give you examples of times when they've been nurturing or generous or have asked you about your day. But either way, whether they get defensive or shut down, Either way, your concern is going to go unaddressed. You're not going to feel validated. By contrast, if you can be brave enough to do a soft disclosure, it's going to go differently. So a soft disclosure is verbalizing the tender feeling that's hanging out behind the anger, behind the contempt, behind the resentment. For example, I feel lonely. I feel exhausted. I feel invisible. I feel like I spend all of my time taking care of everybody else and nobody's taking care of me. This soft disclosure is not a guarantee, but it has a much better chance of endearing your partner to you, of drawing your partner closer to you, of invoking a feeling of empathy in your partner than a hard disclosure. So another strategy for transforming resentment is for you to get into the habit of naming the feeling behind the feeling, because that way you are acknowledging for yourself that your resentment is a cover for or is sitting alongside those tender feelings of loneliness or invisibility or craving more connection. And by challenging yourself to put that into voice you're inviting a different kind of response from your partner. And when you get a different response from your partner, your feelings of resentment are going to soften and shift. Approach the resentment like a team. So again, resentment is a feeling that lives inside of you, but says something important about the relationship. So that's why when you're experiencing resentment, I want you and your partner to orient yourselves shoulder to shoulder, looking together at the resentment. So like imagine, actually imagine you and your partner sitting on the couch close to each other and sort of plopping your resentment onto the coffee table in front of the two of you so you can look at it together and so you can address it together. And you can invite this kind of collaboration by saying something to your partner like, I'm aware that I'm feeling some resentment towards you that I don't actually want to feel. I want to be able to focus on what's going well. And I'm trying to figure out why my attention keeps getting stuck here. So this framing moves you out of blame. It moves you out of finger pointing and that sort of victim stance, this idea that you are doing this to me. And it moves the two of you into something more curious and collaborative. And this framing hopefully is going to also reduce your partner's defensiveness because you're enlisting them as a helper, as an ally. It becomes the two of you against the problem rather than the two of you against each other. Number five, revise your relationship agreements. So Dr. Stephen Stosny argues that when we feel resentful, We get seduced into a false idea that if our partner would do more, we would feel less resentful. And he says that when resentment has taken root, our partner doing more actually won't end up making a difference. 
that once they begin walking the dog more consistently, the focus of our resentment will simply shift to something else they're not doing. And that's because, he argues, the root of feeling resentment toward our partner is actually negative feelings we have about ourselves. In other words, we feel resentful about our partner's behavior because we feel like their behavior reflects something negative about us that they aren't caring for us, perhaps because we're not worthy of care. And so then we have to become self-compassionate in order to address that root source. Okay, so I think that is a completely valid perspective. It's a lot of what we've been touching on so far today. But I also do want to include that you can and should see if there are tweaks to your relationship agreements that can make a difference in your experience of resentment. If you're feeling resentful towards your partner, check in with yourself. Can you ask for something specific that you suspect would make a difference? Can you be clear with your partner how and when you'd like to have that done? Can you also personalize your request by saying out loud to your partner what it would mean to you if and when they could do it? So there's that vulnerable piece. It's not just asking for the thing you need. It's also adding that vulnerable piece that personalizes the request that says, here's why it matters to me. Here's how I suspect I would feel if you were willing to be a bit more consistent in this area or to step up in this area. Here's how it would feel for me. So if you can do that, you can make the request. They agree, then agree to check in after a week or so and see how that new revised relationship agreement is going. Because it may be the case, it may be the case that what's needed is just a change, creating more justice, creating more parity. And so certainly that is, you know, something that is worth trying, but I want you to be specific. I want you to tie it to what it would mean to you. And I want you to be really clear in what the ask is, how often, in what way, what does doing it look like, et cetera, et cetera. If your partner meets your request, by saying something like, well, you don't do this, then I think you can validate that and you can say, okay, that's fine. I'm happy to talk to you about what I'm not doing in a separate conversation, right? When you raise a concern, the focus of that conversation needs to be your concern. But you don't have to be the only one who brings up concerns. It just needs to be framed at a different time, in a different place for you to be addressing their concern or their need or the tweak to your relationship agreements that they would like to make. Number six, consider doing less. (laughs) This one's a tricky one. Okay, so you can ask your partner to do more and that might be the ticket forward. But hold open the possibility that freedom from resentment might come in you doing less. Again, nothing in this episode is meant to justify or excuse gross imbalances in effort, respect, and care. But when I'm addressing imbalances and efforts in couples therapy, for example, and partner A is doing more than partner B in a particular domain, and partner A is feeling resentful about it, We have to explore the idea of partner A doing less, right? Certainly we can talk about partner B stepping up and doing more, but if we're going to do that, we have to also talk about the idea of partner A doing less. And partner A's resistance to this idea of them doing less sometimes comes from the fact that what they're doing is quote unquote nice or thoughtful or loving. But it's actually not loving to give so much that you end up expecting a lot in return. And it is not loving to give in a way that sets you up to feel like you need a lot of praise or reciprocation in order to feel good about what you've done. It's actually, wait for it, kind of controlling. You are attempting to ensure that your partner treats you in a particular way by treating them in a particular way. And because you're doing a nice thing for them, you kind of keep yourself beyond reproach. So if your partner attempts to address this dynamic with you, you have a kind of easy go-to of, but what I'm doing is nice, or after all I've done for you, or you should appreciate what I'm doing. Oof. The bottom line here is when you give 
beyond what you can give with an open heart, you are actually doing relational damage. Let's use an example. Birthday preparations. Let's say, for example, when it's your birthday, your partner gets you a card and a gift. But when it's your partner's birthday, you pull out all the stops. You go to extremes. You pull off a day of special events, personalized desserts, and gifts that require lots of research and preparation. So this imbalance leaves you understandably feeling resentment about the efforts that you're making relative to the efforts that they are making. And it might be really hard for you to consider doing less because how can somebody argue with so much generosity? It's just generosity. It's just giving. But here's the tricky thing. Gift giving is actually pretty culturally bound. This difference between you and your partner might stem from your families of origin or from some other cultural difference between the two of you. This was for sure a theme between Todd and me for a long time. I grew up with a mom who went above and beyond for birthdays. She kind of, I think, probably technically invented this concept of the birthday table, which would be like an overflowing mound of elaborately wrapped gifts. And Todd's family, by contrast, did very little to mark birthdays. So one path forward would have been for me to expect Todd to learn how to appreciate and reciprocate an elaborate birthday. And I think that there were quite a few years in there where I did try to indoctrinate him into my way of doing it, into my family of origins way of doing it. And it's a sneaky one because it can feel like elaborately marked birthdays are somehow better or morally superior to low-key birthdays. But there is another path forward, and that was for me to do less, to accept smaller and simpler celebrations, to accept the fact that Todd, in fact, did not feel good standing in front of a birthday table I had made for him. It felt awkward. It felt smothering. It felt, wait for it, controlling. And so that's ultimately the direction that we've headed. So look for ways in your relationship that you might be at risk of turning a difference into a hierarchy. Your way versus your partner's way becomes your way is better than your partner's way. And you may need to grieve that you are not going to have the kinds of celebrations that you had growing up, perhaps. And in that grief, by allowing yourself to grieve, you can step into acceptance and you can begin the practice of doing less in order to stave off resentment. And also the other point I want to make here is that gift giving may have a gendered element that you might need to keep an eye out for. So if you are female identifying, if you are socialized in the feminine, if you're a woman and you're in a heterosexual partnership and you're doing more to mark holidays and birthdays than your partner is, this might be one of the many ways that gendered inequalities and invisible labor are rearing their ugly heads. And your male partner may have grown up in a home where his mom was primarily in charge of celebrations and he therefore carries a default assumption. This is not his domain. If you and your partner remain polarized, you think that every holiday warrants elaborate decorations and rituals, and your partner tends to roll their eyes at all of it, you're going to end up resentful. In fact, you're both going to end up resentful. You will resent all that you do relative to your partner, and your partner will resent the way that you exhaust yourself and that you expect him to be appreciative of your efforts, even though he has not asked you to go to such extremes. So you can, of course, make a personalized request, talking with your partner about what their increased efforts would mean to you, but hold open the idea of three other paths forward. Number one, if your partner began to express more appreciation for all of what you do, would that help you feel less resentful? So feeling seen may be as important or perhaps more important than reciprocation. Number two, could you grieve the loss of what you wish you could have and consider doing less as a way of protecting yourself from disappointment? If you choose this path, make sure you let yourself feel proud of how you're making this shift for the benefit of the relationship rather than now feeling resentful that you can't have the kind of celebrations that you want to have. Number three, 
Could you give yourself the kind of attention that you're craving from your partner? So often we long for something from the outside, but giving ourselves the attention and celebration that we crave can be empowering and can be a reminder that our partner cannot be everything to us and for us. This idea of doing less as a path to freedom from resentment is for sure a tricky one. And it needs to be done probably in conjunction with some others of the strategies that we're covering today. Number seven, celebrate approximations. Let's say you've been feeling resentful and you've expressed it to your partner. And now your partner is making an effort, but they're Effort is clunky and it's not very smooth and perhaps it's not as smooth as it is when you do the same for them. See if you can allow yourself to celebrate the approximation. Grade your partner on a curve. They are not you and they do not have to be you. See if you can focus on the effort they're making and not the ways in which this is not an A-plus performance. Far from being patronizing, your willingness to notice and celebrate their approximation is in fact motivating for them. What we focus on, we get more of. A colleague of mine has an analogy that he uses in couples therapy. When a couple is changing a behavior, the first bunch of times you try a new behavior, it's clunky. It's like when you have a piggy bank and the first penny that goes into the piggy bank kind of clangs around against the bottom and the sound is like totally hollow. But as you continue to add pennies, that sound shifts. It becomes less hollow. It becomes like more of a substantial sound. Well, your partner's efforts are like pennies in that piggy bank. The hollowness of the early attempts just reflects the place from which you are starting, not the actual quality of what they're doing for you. I want to be clear here. Celebrating an approximation is different from enabling weaponized incompetence. Okay, what is weaponized incompetence, you ask? Weaponized incompetence is when somebody feigns not being able to do something in order to get out of doing it. It's a passive-aggressive behavior for sure. It's one that's been talked about quite a bit lately, especially in the context of gendered inequalities in domestic labor, this idea of husbands and dads kind of underperforming in the hopes that the mama or the wife will just be like, ugh, forget it, I'll do it myself. That's been the context in which people have been talking about it. People of any gender, of course, can be guilty of weaponized incompetence. So the difference between your partner trying but being clunky and them weaponizing incompetence comes down to a felt sense that you have. You'll have to just discern what's happening. If you have a felt sense that your partner's heart is in the right place, that they are trying to please you, that's when you celebrate an approximation. If by contrast, you have a felt sense that their deepest wish is for you to just pull your expectation off the table and underperforming, screwing it up is the strategy they're using, that may be weaponized incompetence. So just make sure as you're assessing or trying to discern the difference between, you know, clunky but effortful, which means you're going to celebrate the approximation and intentionally screwing it up because it's weaponized incompetence. As you're trying to like feel your way into the difference between those two with your partner, make sure you're checking in with yourself about the amount of vulnerability you feel in the ask. If you're feeling quite tender about asking for this, then you might be primed to accuse them of intentionally screwing it up because you feel so vulnerable. The more grounded that you can feel in your ask, the easier it will be for you to suss out what's really going on with their effort. And finally, in terms of celebrating approximations, remember that patience is not foolishness. Changing patterns takes time and it takes practice and it takes repetition. Change happens in little moments. So affirm to yourself that it's okay for you to be asking, affirm to yourself that it's brave to be patient, and affirm to your partner that it's okay for them to be trying but imperfect. Okay, two to go. Home stretch here. Number eight, practice forgiveness. Resentment is a cue that you're struggling with a lack of forgiveness. You're struggling, you're sort of withholding forgiveness or you're not able to move into a space of forgiveness. 
And one thing that we know for sure is if you're going to be in an intimate relationship, you need to learn how to put the past in the past for your sake and for your partner's sake. My favorite definition of forgiveness is letting go of the wish that the past could be different. Ugh, such a big one. Forgiveness is letting go of the wish that the past could be different. What happened, happened, even though we don't like it, even though we wish it hadn't, even if we'd give just about anything to undo it. It happened. And forgiveness is not easy. It requires time and intention and practice, and it's a relational process. Your partner needs to do their part by demonstrating a willingness to be accountable, to be open-hearted, and to validate your struggle. And their efforts are essential to helping you do your part, which is bit by bit, step by step, putting down the heavy chains of resentment. In episode 24 of Reimagining Love, I talked about forgiveness is one of the 10 essential skills for navigating conflict. And in that episode, I shared two quotes from Rabbi Kushner from his classic book, which is called When Bad Things Happen to Good People. I'm going to share them again here. So the first quote is this, good people will do good things, lots of them, because they are good people. They will do bad things because they are human. The second quote is this, are you capable of forgiving and loving the people around you, even if they have hurt you and let you down by not being perfect? Can you forgive them and love them because there aren't any perfect people around? And because the penalty for not being able to love imperfect people is condemning oneself to loneliness. Forgiveness is a big topic. It's one that we're going to come back to in a future episode of Reimagining Love. But for now, know that it is incredibly brave to put the past in the past bit by bit. It's incredibly brave to cancel that debt, which is what forgiveness is. It's a canceled debt. You could continue to demand retribution. You could continue to remind your partner of that painful thing they did. But forgiveness says, I release I let go of the opportunity to punish you again and again for what happened, for my sake, for your sake, for our sake. Okay, number nine, boost gratitude. Remember at the top of the show, I said that resentment is the conceptual opposite of gratitude. So it makes sense that boosting your gratitude practices will crowd out feelings of resentment. Gratitude offers a pathway out of resentment. So what kinds of gratitude practices might you integrate into your life? I'm going to suggest four of them. Number one, express gratitude directly to your partner over and over and over. The effects of expressing gratitude benefit you as well. In fact, there was a 2013 study from a journal called Emotion that found that partners were more responsive to each other's needs and expressed greater satisfaction in their relationship after being on the receiving end of gratitude from their significant other. In other words, gratitude begets responsiveness. I express gratitude for you, and you respond by being responsive to me and emotionally attuned to me. So you win because I express gratitude to you, and I win because you're extra sweet to me. It's a big old circle. Okay, suggestion number two is to create a gratitude album on your phone. So make a folder on your phone and put in there photos of you and your partner, screenshots of cute text exchanges, quotes perhaps about love that help you feel warmly and positively about the relationship. So you have it there on your phone and you can reference it often. Number three, Another gratitude practice that I love is before bed, reflect on three things that you are grateful for from the day. These can, and in fact should be, small, simple things like a delicious dinner or receiving a funny text from an old friend. You can write these in a journal. You can use an app on your phone to just go through the ritual of, of writing it down, of kind of like putting it somewhere so you can see it and look at it and just code and land that feeling of gratitude. Number four, you can supercharge this end of the day gratitude practice by talking briefly with your partner at the end of the day about three things that you're grateful for. 
This conversation can take like two or three minutes tops, but just make sure that you guys clarify your expectations for this conversation. For example, we will share one relational gratitude and two miscellaneous gratitudes, for example, so that you don't leave space to compare which one of you talked more about the other one or which one of you was more grateful for the relationship. So just get clear, like one of our gratitudes will be for something that the other person did or for something about the relationship, but then the other two can just be miscellaneous gratitudes. Okay, so that last one, boosting gratitude, is another potent way of moving out of resentment or neutralizing or softening resentment. We did it. We did it. We did it. So thank you so much for joining me for this conversation about resentment, what it feels like, uh, what it is, and then of course, how to transform it so that it does not have the power to erode the quality of your relationship. So make sure you check out the additional resources that we've linked in the show notes. And as always, until next time, take good care of yourself. Do you have a relationship question that you want answered on the show? Visit reimagininglove.com to send in a written or audio question. Questions can be about intimate partnerships, family relationships, friendships, you name it. If you're looking for more love and relationship content, you can find me on Instagram at dr.alexandra.solomon or visit my website, dralexandrasolomon.com, where you'll find my blog as well as the Intimate Relationships 101 e-course based off of the popular class I teach at Northwestern University. Thank you for listening and see you next week here on Reimagining Love.